0: Everyone eats, we all need food. We all need land to produce that food and farmland is under threat and it's being lost. So to take you know sort of alternative perspective and realize that like solar development can flip from being a net driver of farmland loss, potentially to a net driver of preserving that farmland or even creating new farmland in the process is a really exciting prospect.
1: Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. The podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar developer and consulting firm. Our website's www.reneuenergy.com. I'm excited on this episode of the podcast to have Drew Pearson from Blue Wave Solar and Ian Ward from Solar Agricultural Services. We're talking about a topic that we haven't discussed on the podcast, Dual Use Solar, also known as agrovoltaics or co-location of solar, is the practice of installing solar photovoltaic panels on farmland in such a manner that primary agricultural activities such as animal grazing and crop vegetable production are maintained simultaneously on that farmland. Drew Pearson is the head of sustainability at Boston-based Blue Wave Solar. The company has successfully developed over 130 megawatts of solar in Massachusetts since 2010, including driving innovation in community solar and dual-use development drew is a renewable energy project developer with over 10 years of experience in clean energy real estate and regional economic development issues as head of sustainability drew seeks to raise the bar for sustainable based enterprise by leading the company's agrovoltaics and dual use solar business strategy in multiple states as a senior director drew has also delivered over 50 megawatts of solar across massachusetts Ian Ward is an agricultural consultant, expert, and the CEO of Solar Agricultural Services that works with Blue Wave to ensure that land the projects are being developed on will benefit and or improve from the project and the farmers have a viable land moving forward. Ian provides insight in the podcast into how solar developers should be turning to agricultural experts to work with them to achieve success on these regenerative agricultural projects. Blue Wave and Solag have been innovative in developing dual-use solar projects. I'm really excited to have them on the podcast. They're experts in this part of the solar industry, and they provided a lot of great insights in the podcast. You'll learn more about dual-use agrivoltaics and regenerative agriculture. What are the benefits of the dual-use and how states are offering new incentives to dual-use solar projects, and which states have great incentives and which are moving forward? I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited about this episode. I have Drew Pearson from Blue Wave and Ian Ward from Solar Agricultural Services, Solar Ag. And this is actually a topic that we haven't talked about in the podcast, Dual Use. And both of you are innovating this for the U.S. and the rest of the world. So I appreciate you making the time today to be on the podcast. For sure. And sharing your insights and you know, really starting to do this first in Massachusetts and really bringing this to other states. I think what would be great if we could first talk about what both of your companies do and how you work together.
0: Yeah. So, so I work at Blue Wave Solar, the head of sustainability at the company. And Blue Wave is a solar developer that's been around since 2011. We have a strong track record in the Massachusetts and New England solar market, you know, from the beginning, approaching our work with an attitude of leading by doing. So we developed some of the first projects that were situated on highly contaminated lands, super fun sites specifically. One of our co-founders, John DeVillers, was former head of the New England EPA and very high in state government in environmental policy. So we have a sort of environmental ethos in our DNA that translates through a lot of what we do by always trying to innovate and do better. So building on that success in the early days, working on contaminated lands, we were some of the first community solar projects, first community solar project actually in Massachusetts, and then built a strong track record influencing that corner of the market. And here we are today doing the same thing with dual use, and we're really excited to be able to share a lot of those insights and experiences. Blue Wave is also a B Corp, meaning that we strive to body values that are a force for good. We believe that we can't address the climate crisis without addressing the impacts of the energy industry, specifically those impacts on marginalized communities. And we're committed to expanding access to renewable energy across the board. So we hold ourselves accountable to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion through our social impact committee. And we know that while we're not perfect, we're always striving to improve how we approach this work through learning and listening.
2: That's why my company works with Blue Wave is initially Solar Agricultural Services was born out of need to create a structure for the farming entities that Blue Wave was working with. Originally met Blue Wave as they were developing projects on um, agricultural land, not dual use, where I was representing farmers. I'm an agricultural land planner by trade, environmental science major, NRCS consultants, technical service provider. So I had all that conservation planning background, worked as an independent farm planner for a decade or more. And the need for diversification and a solid revenue stream on farms was an extreme necessity. So Massachusetts came up with a SMART program. And all of a sudden, the things that I was doing, and I had known Blue Wave with conventional solar projects, was a value because I already had relationships with farmers, understood the conservation aspect of farming activities, which is key to the regenerative story, and knew the parties and the people involved both locally and on the state level with Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources. So it kind of was able to walk in and say, okay, we have some credibility here. Let's try to craft how this regulation becomes reality because it's kind of different, right? You can have a policy, but then how do you effectuate that policy? And that's where SOLAG was born. And that partnership between Blue Wave and SOLAG has been extremely beneficial for both parties as we're looking at this being a farm first endeavor and putting the farmer's needs and the land's needs first. Then we figure out how to put the solar where it needs to go because everyone needs to make money. It has to work together. But really, truly setting that bar high from that farm's point of view first is what we specialize in. So, Solag is a one stop shop to managing agricultural assets and production under these solar rates. And we really specialize in maintaining that network of relationships within the farming community to effectively produce crops and manage the marketing of those crops, maintain the records that are required in the long term operation so that we can satisfy both the regulatory compliance on the solar side and food safety compliance and all the other things involved with actually producing a viable crop.
1: Yeah, it sounds like an amazing partnership. And that's really interesting, the whole farm first concept, because really, it has to be beneficial for the farmer, all the different ways that you guys have partnered together to basically figure out a way that makes the farmer happy and obviously economical for all parties involved. So that's really interesting to hear about the partnership because, as you both know, like approaching landowners, if you're not a farmer or have like the sort of background that you have, Ian, it really makes a difference in the conversations when a solar developer is partnering, you know, with you. So.
2: It does Benoit, and I have to say to Blue Wave's credit, significant credit, the latitude that they've given on having that. And they're a solar the company first, right? But giving this smart program and the the farmers the first dibs at how this could work best, it just shows you as a B Corp and as a socially conscientious company just how far they're willing to go.
1: Definitely, that's huge. I mean, it's amazing for me to see like the growth of Blue Wave, as Drew was saying, as one of the first community solar companies and take working on complicated sites to now like basically dual use, which is like another area outside of that, but extremely complicated to take the most difficult projects, but then have like some sort of social
0: benefit or higher benefit than just the solar project in itself.
1: I mean, that's the way I perceive it, Drew, but you could correct me.
0: Yeah, Benoit, you hit it right on the head. I mean, one of the reasons so many of us at Blue Wave are excited about dual use is just how scalable it can be, how intersectional it is with so many different, you know, elements of land management, of the economy. Everyone eats. We all need food. We all need land to produce that food. And farmland is under threat and it's being lost. So to take, you know, sort of alternative perspective and realize that like solar development can flip from being a net driver of farmland loss potentially to a net driver of preserving that farmland or even creating new farmland in the process is a really exciting prospect. And even to clarify what I said earlier, I mean, compare us to housing. We're not even really driving farmland loss. We're just preserving that farmland. Maybe it's fallow for a very long period of time, but we want to move this from the model of you know no productivity and no access and displacing farmers to bringing them to the table and having them be a part of this whole deal, because that's how we as a country and state and world, frankly, are going to see deeper levels of solar development that we all need to see to decarbonize our economy. Definitely. And I know you went into a little bit about this, but can you yeah. more, more formally talk about what dual use is? definitely so dual use is a land planning framework that is overlaid on the solar development to ensure that the land underneath the panels has a higher you know sort of value with respect to what is on that land what is happening on that land how that land is interacting with its surroundings so we want to see high value ecological site coverage we want to see other activities farming you know more pastoral kind of activities you know thinking about land use from a conservation perspective like how can we make manage that land with ecosystem services in mind? Potentially, how are we developing these projects to improve net you know, conservation outcomes around the site, even offsite? Just even thinking more broadly, if solar projects are impacting land and potentially cutting trees down or displacing nature, how do we flip the script so that we can still create or support the preservation of nature elsewhere? It's a very you know, broad concept, and so we've kind of divided this framework really into four types. So, starting with pollinator solar, something that will be very familiar to many of your listeners. You know, just making sure that the vegetation itself has a lot of you know flowering benefits for insects, deep root systems, creating you know these sort of um, higher value impacts on ecosystem services like you know hydrology, water infiltration carbon sequestration, even just holding the soil together better than turf grass, gravel, right? And then going to the next layer up, it's uh, grazing solar. So how can we introduce sheep as a vegetation management strategy that either replaces or supplements mowing? And then going one layer further, it's agrivoltaics. So how can we think about higher levels of agricultural production within this array? So farming crops, you know, ground crops and designing these projects in a way that still allows for the free mobility of people and equipment. And then, you know, kind of that last layer is again, conservation solar. So how do we design these sites with the ecosystem in mind? Thinking about interactions between the open field, the edge habitats, the transitional zones that might go into a neighboring woodlot or forest? You know, how do we think about mitigating the impact of tree cutting and the like, and then making interventions that support specific species?
2: That is a good definition. And I was just going to add to what Drew was saying from a holistic perspective. You know, the word sustainable is kind of like a buzzword now. It's almost overused to a certain extent, but to a very definite degree, this is an opportunity, takes is an opportunity to combine energy sector money with agricultural sector land. When you join those forces and you do it the way that we're doing it here in Massachusetts thus far, we're looking at regenerative agricultural practices that we're integrating. So, not only do you have the carbon sequestration that you can get from having renewable energy, which is why a lot of us do renewable energy, but you take the typical agricultural practices that a farmer does, you tweak them a little bit because you're operating under posts and under panels. But in that thinking differently, you also say, hey, let's manage this land a little differently and let's integrate some practices that are. Are NRCS approved that have constant cover, the no-till planting, green cover. So you're basically keeping nutrients in the soil, reducing petroleum-based fertilizers and sprays that you might have to use. So you're doubling down on the ability to truly be sustainable and operate this in a holistic manner. So for those listeners that know anything about agriculture or, or like to read about it, you know, if they've read anything or watched Kiss the Ground and heard anything about Alan Savory or Joel Salatin or Gabe Brown or even Berry, right? These concepts are what we're taking. And again, this is the blue wave latitude that they're giving Solag and others that are on our team. They're giving us this latitude to work with the farmers and say, let's incorporate some of these practices into these endeavors. So agrivoltaics on its own is yes, producing a crop, underneath solar panels, the next level and what the opportunities that incentives that states offer provides is really jumpstarting this entire movement towards regenerative agriculture and truly being an effective means, I do believe, and bringing the climate discussion to the forefront.
1: Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Like all these different benefits that I don't think people would clearly know with bringing agrivoltaics. And you mentioned about vegetation and reducing chemicals and grazing and things like that. So it's just amazing to me how many benefits that you might not typically know. So that's really great that you explained
0: that because I think it's probably most of our audience didn't know that. So that's really helpful. I think, you know, as a solar developer, we're finding is a direct benefit of thinking in this way is being able to build more trust with other communities, right? That are very vocal about the impacts land wise of solar conservation communities right? Just the general public, the farming community, like many people are very concerned about the land use impact solar. And so by being able to just demonstrate, honestly, that we're growing in our sophistication and how we're thinking about good land use, we can not only like diffuse a lot of that tension, but then once we lean into it, you start to see opportunities that you would never have seen if you were antagonistic, right? And standing on the opposite sides of an argument, like now you get to work together to figure out what's the best way we should manage our land. And that spills beyond. On just a solar project.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. And I'm sure that's how you're able to develop some of the projects that you have. Can you talk about like why Massachusetts was a great state to, I guess, start with? No, both of you mentioned the SMART incentive yeah. program. So it sounds like there was also maybe
0: an adder in the SMART program that incentives yeah. dual use. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Massachusetts has the benefit of being really well run by a progressive state government. And I mean like progressive in the sense like conservative or liberal governor, it doesn't matter. Like there's been consistency with how the state government has approached its support of innovation in the solar market. And that's been a really good thing. We're a small state, we're land constrained, there's a lot of development pressure. So the need was very real to figure out a better model than what was currently happening to, you know, avoid displacement of farms. In the solar market. And the state actually viewed this as an investment in its agricultural community, which I think is the right way to look at this. So around four years ago, they were contemplating putting an incentive adder in place for this smart program to support agrivoltaics. And right around the same time, you know, so John Devillers tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, like, let's put a grant application into the Department of Ag because they have this innovation program around agrivoltaic pilot projects. It was a very small grant to fund the construction of like a 25kw you know facility and they just wanted to just again see can this work build on some of the work that's going on at UMass and Amherst with that agrivoltaic research site and so we said yeah sure so we applied we got the grant again at the same time that they're contemplating this program and the Department of AG was being tapped to help administer it for doer so we found that this conversation in applying for this grant was in effect also a conversation and helping to influence you know mdar's understanding of whether it should be you know moving forward with this type of incentive so we really leverage the benefit of our development experience in real time. And we had a very collaborative relationship with Jerry Polano at MDAR, who's been a great partner. And yeah, so that two way dialogue really sort of fast forward, right? We had to do things like prove that there was sufficient sunlight within this array, notwithstanding that there were no solar design tools out there to help us do that on a per square foot basis underneath and around the solar panels. So we developed our own algorithm with the assistance of a really bright and talented colleague, Matt Parlin. You know, he and I worked together with Jerry, and we developed this tool that now underpins the smart program program. program, you know, as the design standard that was validated by Fraunhofer and the like. And I'm giving you more detail than you asked for, because this is a little bit of an insight into what collaborative governance can do when the private sector is willing to receive it and return it in kind. And so through all of this, we realized, okay, this smart program is headed in the right direction. You get insight, right, into the design standards, into the expected incentive levels, etc. So we said, oh, actually, Grafton, which was originally that grant project, let's just make this a real deal. Let's make it a you know 3.2 megawatt deal covering 13 plus acres, two arrays, vegetables, rotational grazing of animals, farm infrastructure, the like. Let's do it because we've got enough confidence to know this is going to work. And so we had a head start. So that's why we're doing it in Massachusetts because frankly, they're the first state in the country to put this kind of incentive program in place. And so I guess with that, we are trying to leverage this experience to influence how other states now can think about dual use and agrivoltaic policy and incentives. So we've been very active in Maine for for example, we've exported a lot of our knowledge and experience here. And we're doing some of the first tech projects in that state, despite no incentive on a wild blueberry farm in Rockport. And then we were working really closely actually with the state government in New Jersey and much to everyone's enthusiasm, like we're seeing second policy of Massachusetts style incentive policy being adopted in that state. And we're super excited. So again, more than he asked for, but yeah, Massachusetts was a really great proving ground for sure.
2: To add to that collaboration, we should really mention that the University of Massachusetts played a critical role in being open to this, right? It's one thing to put a policy together, and then the policymakers essentially know how to effectuate that change, as I mentioned before. So they deferred it to the University of Massachusetts, the crop extension folks. Well, you're the agricultural experts. Help make this work. And they sort of scratch their heads, saying, well, how do we do that? They put together a predetermination application process that has evolved over the past year and a half. That was at first, you know, just answer some questions. And then it was, let's get to some sophisticated answers. Let's know the kind of crops that you're going to grow, what your one year, your two year, your five year plan is, where are you marketing these crops? So as the seriousness of this endeavor came to be known and as developers said, hey, we wanna do this, please provide us some guidance and we'll work together. That collaboration really was an important aspect to this. And I think we are finding that in Maine, University of Maine extension is the same, they're acting in the same capacity on the blueberries. So there's research integrated into every one of these projects thus far that's going forward to actually a large degree. And the solar companies that are promoting this, such as Blue Wave, are investing, they're putting their money where their mouth is because they're investing in the projects. They're investing in matching funds for projects that can leverage other federal funds, like perhaps through the Department of Energy. So in trying to push this forward to put science behind the agricultural aspect of growing under panels and people are concerned about shade. It's not really about shade. It's about photosynthetically available radiation or PAR. And so let's have PAR sensors out there. Let's have the experts at UMass and at UMaine, I would venture to say Rutgers down in New Jersey, be a part of these projects and put the science behind it so that the pioneers in this who are taking the risks pave the way successfully for the next round coming in. And we have an informed when it goes into Colorado and California, can you imagine the Salinas Valley having Dual use, agroforestry, preserving the water that's underneath these, reducing the amount of inputs that they need to have. Like overall, there are so many positive aspects of this that three to five years from now, the science that we're learning here in Maine and New Jersey is going to be directly applicable.
1: Yeah, that's amazing when you think about that. And it's like unique to each area. So it's almost like a learning experience. And that's why you're partnering with like the different universities. And and just there's so many different benefits, as you mentioned, which is a great point, Ian, it's like the first ones, right? And then there'll be a learning, we'll be able to take advantage even more. So that's really exciting to hear about that. What was interesting for me to hear as well was obviously within the SMART program about collaborative governance, how do these projects work if there's not an incentive within the solar? Obviously, the economics must be better in other parts
0: of it. It's a really good question. Yeah, I guess it's worth stating that they work when people want it to work, right? That's like far and above the most important quality. People need to want this from both sides. And so if you don't have that attitude, unfortunately, it's probably not going to go very far. So that said, there's a lot of reasons to want it, right? Communities are going to accept it. Your farmers are going to accept it. You're going to build credibility. And you know, as a land developer, what better way to build a pipeline or network of new project opportunities than to build trust among the very people who are closest to the land, right? Like Some could say it's a self-interested perspective, but I think it's just the right perspective. Why wouldn't we want to do good work and make everyone trust this process? So that said, in Maine, we'll talk to that example because there's no incentive. So starting with the design typology is really important. Is it a fixed tilt array or is it like a single axis tracker array? Both are going to have very different sort of baseline conditions that will inhibit or promote farming right so in the fixed tilt sense those panels are facing south those shadows behind those panels are largely going to be consistently stuck in place right throughout the array so if it's to remain fixed tilt how do you think about panel selection is it monofacial or bifacial is it letting more sunlight through Row spacing. Can people fit between these rows? The height of the panels. If you have equipment, like from a farming perspective, like is there just simply adequate clearance, the low end of the panels or not? The racking selection. Are there members of like the posts that are being driven into the ground or that are supporting the purlins on either side? Like how does that inhibit potentially the movement, right, of people and equipment? And then once you can control for those factors, then what design sort of tweaks might you be able to make to improve any number of those different interests? Right. So that's what we kind of did in Grafton. We can talk about that design, you know, later, but we did have to actually tweak things like azimuth and height and you know panel spacing and the like, which comes at a cost. Single axis tracker is really interesting because it's already a north-south oriented row. So the aisles between the rows are already naturally exposed to the southern horizon. So they get a lot more direct sunlight. And then the added benefit, because these panels track, that shadow tracks as well and it moves across the properties. So like you're seeing at Jack Solar Garden in Colorado, they have some fantastic time lapses. Like by and large, there's going to be more square footage within that array that's going to have a greater sort of exposure to sunlight. So by definition, that means that you need to think less about optimizing some of those other design characteristics. And maybe you narrowly focus in on you know, maybe it's height, maybe it's row spacing, great. And then I think the other components that are important for designing a successful project without an incentive, real estate agreements, insurance policies, O&M policies, Tax policies—all of that adds up in a very material way that could make or break a project. One should understand that almost all of those components of a conventional project will need to be tweaked in some way, shape, or form, which could come with an additional cost. And then I would say, lastly, if development fees are large enough, you know, arguably you could get something done within a segment of your project. So let's say you got a big 50 megawatt deal, but you reserve five acres of that or 10 acres of that footprint for higher intensity agriculture. You. Put whatever project budget aside might be required to actually invest in the farm and you create a runway, call it five years, to prove what that sort of growing condition allows for, investigate what crops actually work. And then the way that you've modified your other business agreements, you might support the scaling of that ag operation to more acreage throughout the life of the project. So looking at your project is like a dynamic system. It's not a static piece of land where you just set it and forget it. Almost in a way, think of like being a shopping mall manager, you've got storefronts that you got to manage. You could segment your project in any number of different ways that again, don't rely on on maybe an incentive. Maybe it relies on simply know-how and understanding what a profitable farm model is and looks like, and then bringing the right partners to the table to take that risk. And I think as long as you've accommodated for that possibility in your business agreements and real estate agreements, then you might not need maybe nearly as much of an incentive as you might now, right? Where we're all trying to figure this out at the start.
2: You know, Blue Wave is well aware and our hope is for these projects that are done without an incentive. Sometimes it just takes someone making the decision, as Drew said, aligning interests and desiring for this to happen and moving forward and being a template, for others to follow in that state. Because once it's talked about and once someone does it, the state can say, well, hey, in the case of blueberries, the blueberries, the vines, the bushes didn't die. Okay, checkbox. There's actual production. Hey, we have another 30,000 acres of blueberries that are threatening to be lost at some time in the future. There's also a state policy to have more renewable energy put on the ground. Well, some of it's going to go over those blueberries. If we can come up with an incentive so that we don't lose those blueberries, it could be the next Napa Valley in Maine with what they're doing with the wine production, okay, so all of a sudden, there's multiple economic reasons to think this through, and you have a case study to use it as reference.
1: As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose podcast laundry. All I have to do is record and send, and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you you love, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Yeah, that's amazing to talk about. You know what I think about when I hear this is you made a great point, Ian, about farmers first. Now you're talking about like all these different revenue streams. Obviously you're getting a lease payment from the solar and then obviously you're able to continue farming in areas that before there wasn't the dual use. And you talk about the economic opportunity for the US
2: farmer with looking at projects like this. Great question. And this is huge. This is what drives me to do what I do. Not going into our complete national policy on agriculture, but there is something to be said for the lack of reliable income, predictable income, and on farmers. Farmers are on a shoestring budget, and just you borrow, you hope you get through to borrow again, and that's just the, how we're set up, unfortunately, today. Where some of the largest producers are only making it because of a federal incentive to stay in production. So, if you can say to a landowner, and I'm saying a landowner, not necessarily a farmer, you say to a landowner who owns agricultural land, you're going to receive a lease payment for having solar on your property. There's a an incentive incentive paid to you to farm this land, because it's going to be a change. You're going to have to do things a little differently, but we're spinning this in a positive way that you can have smaller equipment. You can do more tailored farm to table kind of things versus just big agriculture. So even with those big agricultural folks, when you start talking to farmers, if they can net more than what they're netting now, they're entrepreneurs. Why would they consider that? And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about solar is a value added product. Consider your land. How do you value add, provide value to different segments of it? Well, you allow for solar to go in a certain Part of it, You don't have to worry about your grandfather rolling over in their grave because the farmland is lost. No, you're still going to grow underneath it. So the sentimental aspect of losing that farmland disappears. That's a huge psychological benefit for farmers. So take that off. You're not cutting down a bunch of trees. There's either your windbreak or for conservation groups, the reason why they're opposed to solar in the first place. You're putting over existing agricultural land. So you're not violating any of the tax incentives that the farmer otherwise enjoys, right? So you'd still tax as farmland. There are agreements with the solar personal property tax tax that's paid, the pilot agreements or however they're called in your own states, those are still there. So the towns benefit, the farm benefits, the farmer themselves benefit, the legacy over to the next generation, which is huge. The median age of farmers is in their 60s nationwide. And depending upon which state you're in, it's higher. So how do we incentivize the next generation to want to come back to the farm or the new farmers who can't afford to buy that farmland because of development pressure? And then in the Northeast, that's exactly what our issue is. You can't afford to grow strawberries on an acre of land when that acre of land is worth a house lot value. so by lowering the barrier of entry, because you've got a diversified income that's stable over a long period of time, the landowner benefits. The farmer who may not be the landowner gets to come in. I say that on purpose because, in my mind, this is a succession plan in the making. The next generation of farmer that can't afford that land can come in. You can have one, two, three, four farmers farming that land, maybe taking advice from the landowner because it's set up for a value-added kind of product.
0: No, I mean Ian covered so much great ground there, and I wanted to offer a couple other points. So, I mean, there are. Quite Quantifiable benefits in some areas that the structure itself creates for this growing environment. So you've got the attenuation of heat stress. In some cases, there are some crops that are partially shade tolerant and can tolerate a reduction in sunlight. And then in some cases, there are crops that actually benefit from that reduction. And then you're retaining more moisture. There's less evapotranspiration happening compared to an open field. So more water is not only being held by the soil and then on top of the soil, but actually within the plants themselves. So then you have yield characteristics that are changing. And then because of the combination of these factors, crops themselves, like maybe you get a difference in volume or quality and then nutrient content, right? Because of the way this all comes together. And if you're managing the soil in a good way, this all adds up. And then on the kind of like practical side of this, like if you're requiring less inputs for given crop, like that can be a net economic benefit for a farmer. And certainly it's not know rosy like that across the board. Like there are going to be other crops that just don't make sense here. And that's fine. But there are enough crops where it certainly does make sense, You know, as we can talk about later in the case of Japan, which is currently growing over 120 kinds of crops, over 2,000 plus agrivoltaic projects, You know, and their near two decades of experience have very much proven that this is workable for farmers enough that it's stuck around and is now the preferred siting policy in Japan. So that's, I think, a really great aspect of this. And then the other part of the financial picture that Ian touched upon is that separate and apart from these lease payments, the benefit of an incentive is that it gives a developer the opportunity to invest directly in the farming operation, meaning that we're creating what could be regarded as a per acre payment for crops. Let's just say, some might call it a subsidy, some might call it an investment, but you're defraying the cost of production for any given crop. You're supporting that farmer on a time and materials basis. You're helping to pay for inputs and equipment. You're paying for fencing. Fencing is a huge cost center for a lot of farmers. Well, a solar project's building that already. And then if you look at the next generation of agrivoltaic, projects that we're now starting to see in Europe and is where I'm hoping the industry here can go. If you take the example of wineries and orchards, so like hail protection, netting is a huge cost for growers every year. And one hailstorm could wipe out millions of dollars worth of product. So the fact that a solar project could, in theory, be sited within an orchard or within a, a winery in some way, shape or form and provide that protective netting, you're again defraying a cost that a farmer would otherwise need. Need to incur anyway. And so I think the combination of these factors, again, paired with potential productivity benefits, especially as things get hotter and drier, is enough to entice farmers to say, Where do I sign? It's not that easy, not that simple, but like there's so many encouraging data points from other projects that are getting done worldwide to suggest that this is something that like farmers really buy into and are excited about. That is the key. There's a couple of objections that people have on the farming side. When you
2: introduce this concept, they say, how am I going to operate with my existing equipment? Because farmers think equipment, right? And you address that by saying, you'll have to tweak it a little bit. But if the solar company is willing to help defray the cost of that or entirely cover that or have an incentive over a period of time and provide infrastructure that allows for that to happen, forgetting that you can also grow a crop and it may come from that. This is just the upfront things that we're talking about. They pause and they're like, huh. Okay, all right, keep talking. And then the next objection is, what are we concerned about for length of time? What are we committing to in this endeavor? And depending upon the state, if there's a state incentive, sometimes you're committing for a 20 year period to produce in a certain way, but don't worry about that. We've come up with a strategy for that. It doesn't have to be just you. We can have an agricultural asset manager like Solag do this for you. There's a reason why we've developed these systems that we have over the past couple of years is because it's in order to address the rebuttals by farmers because they really, once they get a hold of this, they are so excited to do something different, to try to implement conservation practices that they've thought about doing, that they're hearing about doing, but they're up against it because they owe a lot of money to the bank or they just can't get their heads around changing something that their grandfather did, their father did, their grandmother. That change of habit is what this allows. And once you start having that conversation, farmers are calling me and saying, hey, I thought about this. And hey, I thought about that. And it is so exciting to see them reinvigorated on not just doing business as usual. That's how you address those farmers' concerns. And once they buy in, then... How quickly can we get going? And it's like, hold on a second. There is a permitting process. You know, we got to wait for the interconnection applications to be filed and the utility companies to get their act together and actually allow COD to happen. So all these things are part and parcel with the project. So, But you are end up trying to reel them back in because it is. In Massachusetts and other places, it can be a two to three year process as you all probably know that, right? Depending upon how deep you are in and how the size of these projects is. So that's how you address initial landowner hesitation. And it's really fun. To be having these conversations in front of permitting authorities, because as Drew could probably talk about, their communities in general can sometimes have solar fatigue. You know, oh, just another group of trees coming down, more solar. Like, when's this going to end? Kind of thing. And and the agrivoltaic discussion, dual use discussion, totally changes that. The first meeting, it's almost predictable now. Well, I don't know about this, and I don't know about that. And how do we know it's going to be real? And once the conversation's had, here are the things that are in place. Here's how we're working with the agricultural extension. Here's the degree of thought that's been put into the farming plan. Here's the farmer saying that they're willing to do this. Then all of a sudden they're like, wow, okay, So this is going to help protect that farmland. Oh, this is why the state incentivizes it over for our prime farmland. Because this is a big deal. In Massachusetts, we're talking about only allowing this to happen over prime farmland or farmland of state importance, which fits the tax classification of agricultural land. And the reason for that is because it's seen as a land preservation technique, right? If you can line these very productive farms with a way to keep them productive, because the last cash crop is a house. That's a house lot. Some development, it's gone. It's no longer producing agriculturally. So as a land preservation, again, this is Massachusetts centric, not applicable to every state, but we have a lot of pressure. So let's try to keep that farmland preserved. Once the local boards understand that that's a big picture, they're like, wow, are there more of these projects? Just tell us that we won't see it. And we tell them that we won't see it. Put a fence or a buffer there, something that's planted. And they're like, okay, let's go. Let's hit the ground running.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me when you talk about dual use, obviously this is a new concept that not many people know about. When you initially originate the opportunity with the farmer, which I'm assuming is not an in-person
0: meeting, how do you get them interested So we, as a company, lean on in-person meetings a lot because we're a local and regional developer and you can always build trust way more effectively face-to-face and through a handshake and actually taking time to get to know someone than some faceless mailer. Not to say we don't do those things, but we really try to do everything possible to build that relationship. But I think you always get the initial attention and interest, typically, just by saying this is not your standard solar project. And it's been a differentiator for sure because not every developer is out there saying what we're saying. So almost by definition, people are willing to listen to what we have to say. And then what we really try to do is build out this vision of like, okay, well, you're a farmer and you want to keep farming. What are your priorities for this project? What do you want to keep producing? If you were given the resources in support of your production, what would you aspire toward, right? It's kind of that like sort of kitchen table talk that we really strive to have on every project because that from the start sets a good tone with these landowners and really making them a partner in planning these projects. And I think it's that kind of attitude that usually apparent to. a lot of folks, and we've gotten really good feedback on account of that. I'm not a farmer. I'm never going to pretend to be a farmer. I'm from the Midwest, so sure, I can talk folksy or whatever, but like, I didn't grow up on a farm. So I don't want to be that developer who's speaking at a turn. I want to show that I'm doing my due diligence, absolutely, and that I'm like willing to listen and work with them, but it's folks like Ian, who are the farmers, who are in this community every day, that are really important for these early stage conversations because, I mean, you can attest to this. We kind of take the conversations to that next level because farmers always have those five 10 plus questions that are about the specifics of farming that again, I would never be able to answer.
2: That's where this partnership, in any partnership I would advocate, this is not exclusive to the soil ag. If you're going to do dual use agrivoltaics anywhere, I think having someone on your team that can talk the talk of a farmer that is a farmer or that knows something about former NRCS, which is the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is part of the USDA, crop advisor, technical service provider, someone in that regard that can talk and understand where the farmer's coming from, it just is a no-brainer. You want to have that kind of relationship. And when you say farm first, farmers do things in a relationship manner. There's very few farmers who don't barter in some form or fashion. And that only works when there's a degree of trust. And trust is hard-earned. You have to earn your stripes. So if you're already in the field and you've earned those stripes and you can have a coffee shop conversation that checks out, can't be fake, it's gotta be real. It checks out with so-and-so and and because farmers are dumb like foxes, right? They're asking questions. They're gonna ask questions to say, is this legit? What risk am I putting myself and my farm at? Because both farms are under pressure. They're being solicited by regulators to do it this way, by conservation groups, by people that are well-meaning, that like to look at the farm. So I don't want you to do that. I just wanna look at it this way. I don't want that smell, but I want the green grass. So you go to them, you say, we're gonna try something new their first reaction is, well, show me. Where else have you done this? We haven't really done it a whole lot. So how do you say trust us? You don't accept by demonstrating that you listen and that you understand what they're going through and the practices that they're already doing and how we can tweak them.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the end, to add to that point, farmers get solicited by the development community endlessly, dozens and dozens of solar companies knocking on their door, giving them the same sales pitch, housing developers doing the same thing. And there's every reason why farmers should be skeptical because unfortunately for many folks, like those negotiations, don't always work out the way that farmers and landowners would like them to, and people get burned. It's really important to show and demonstrate that you've really thought about it.
1: I think another thing too that Ian mentioned as well, you have basically a proof of concept already with several projects that you've developed starting in Grafton and then Maine where I don't really know of many dual use projects in the United States. So it really does help to kind of show that you have a track record of success and then being involved as well about the lobbying efforts and the new legislation with New Jersey dual use. What is like the ideal incentive to incentivize dual use solar projects? You talked about what it potentially could be used for, like for farming, and other aspects of it. What's the proper way of incenting dual use? We talked about the smart program where they had an adder for that. We talked about main, there wasn't, but the economics. It
0: would be great to get an idea. I think taking a ground up view is the right starting point and really going through like a hypothetical business planning approach from the farm's perspective, as well as from the solar project's perspective, is important because going through that planning process, you're going to identify costs that you might not have thought about if you're just sort of sticking your thumb in the air, right? That said, first, I think, what will it take for farmers to want to do this? Because it comes at risk to them as well. If they're already going into debt to farm and open fields, it's not really going to be that good of a sales pitch to say, well, why don't you come and do that same thing on my solar project so I can earn a higher power rate off of your labor and you're not going to get paid for that. And in fact, you actually might incur a higher cost structure per acre and you might take greater risk at your own expense to farm here. So like we have to neutralize that concern from the start and say, actually, farmers do deserve to get paid because today the economic picture for farmers is bleak. I hate to say it, but like in many cases, it's poverty wages for some farmers. Obviously, it's not like this across the board, but when you're getting paid $30,000, dollars a year or whatever for your efforts. And it's a lifestyle, quote unquote, it's just not acceptable. And if you're trying to build a 20 year business plan off the back of that kind of labor, you got to pay them and make them a part of that process. And then it's things like, okay, what infrastructure might be you know, required? Irrigation, animal shelter to run that farm. How can it be co-located with the site? What's the added cost on steel? Maybe raise the panels. What would then the follow on impacts on like labor, the complexity of the installation be like wiring? There are all these other impacts on the solar design and development process that need to be accounted for. And then thinking through, again, premiums on business agreements and insurance and O&M, that's going to come at a premium. You add all of that up and it's a more complex business model with more moving parts. You got to entice the solar community to want to invest in this in the first place. If they're going to earn more money with less risk doing a standard project, no one's going to do dual use. If you're looking at the same property that could go in either direction, solar developer all day would probably just do the easy thing that they know. So there's a premium that comes with getting people to the table to want to take that risk. And that's got to be reflected in the incentive as well. So I think in a deliberative way, that incentive structure can be built, again, collaboratively with policymakers and other folks that are involved in that process. We're talking about what does it take today to get this going? Let's pretend we're 10 years from now and people now understand, actually, there's like 10 crops that grow really well in this environment. There are entire businesses in the ag world that already have the sophistication to run that business. They're not scared to do it. So they don't really need that startup incentive, they just need a partner who will allow them to do work on that project. So then it's a very different ballgame. What excites me is this idea of utility rate design or even like a bilateral PPA. How could you quantify all of this and then almost demonstrate through the concept of additionality like we see in the carbon markets? If it weren't but for this premium on my power rate, this farming would not get done. How can that kind of mentality then filter in on a marginal basis? I mean, there is an anchor customer out there who says, gee, yeah, I'll actually take 5% savings as opposed to 10% savings because I know that 5% spread is getting invested in this farm. And then what's really cool about this is that once people start thinking in this way, then it's like, well, wait a minute. I'm not only purchasing electricity, I could in theory be purchasing farm products as well. So then the marketing for the farmer becomes more efficient. And now they have a whole customer base that is like at their beck and call, so to speak, because they already know of the farm. They have followed the story. They're invested in who the farmer is, what they're trying to do. And that project is exists for 20 years. So you're giving a farmer a runway to build a business plan that sure might take a few years to get off the ground, but you can tell that story and build that business together with the electricity customer base who then could raise their hand and buy your farm product. And one of the things I get so excited about when I think of this hierarchy of dual use, put agrivoltaics aside for a moment, thinking about ecosystem service payments, you know, carbon can be monetized. There's an entire carbon market now on the federal level that's taking off, investing in forest preservation. So preserving woodlots next to the project. Hydrolog Logical credits that could be monetized because you're demonstrating improvements to the watershed. There are companies out there doing that right now in the regenerative ag space. Super exciting. And you get to bring all of that in that then takes the place of that incentive. And then you go from there and it's like, well, if you're growing sheep, you're also growing fiber. You could grow medicinal plants. You could grow horticultural plants. This is not just limited to food. Like our entire economy arguably is proceeding toward a bio-based economic framework where everything from how we derive our energy to our building materials, textile, could be plant-based. I mean, I think that there really is a world of opportunity out there. The last thing I'll say is then when you think about like co-locating processing or marketing or distribution with these agrivoltaic projects, you're capturing not only cost efficiencies, but you're creating new opportunities for economic growth. To me, that's why I am so bullish on this concept because this incentive is only just to get things started. And I'm so confident that once people get it and their experience, the sheer enthusiasm of doing this and then the urgency of climate change together, we're going to see a ton of innovation in this space. And again, that's why I talk a mile a minute about it because I love it.
2: From a brass tax perspective, Even on a simple thing of complying with bylaws, picture this, picture that the amount of money and engineering that's spent to design a water retention basin for stormwater runoff because these are industrial things. Well, you put them on a farm, you implement the regenerative agricultural practices, which is just to state again, it's the cover cropping, having it be green, not rototilling, doing no-till planting of crops. The soil aggregates build up. There's more water infiltration. There's scientific evidence that you can get 13 inches of water per hour infiltrating into the ground if you apply these regenerative agricultural practices. So if you do that, you don't need to have a stormwater detention system, which then opens up all that land for either more crop production or maybe you make it pollinator habitat. So all of a sudden, all of these objectives that are ancillary to these projects can be designed from the start into them.
1: I mean, what you guys are saying about and it blows my mind what the future could be. And we're just in the early stages of this. And I really appreciate that what you guys are doing, the passion and the innovation that you're creating to create value for the industry, not just the solar industry, but farmer first. And it's interesting as well with ESG goals as well of corporate companies. This has been an amazing podcast interview. I feel like we could go for another hour easily. What is the best way for our listeners who
0: we call Mavericks to learn about your company? to stay in touch with you. You can visit bluewavesolar.com to stay up to date with what's going on with our company. I'm also on LinkedIn, you can look me up. And uh, my email is dpearson at bluewavesolar.com. And you can reach out to my company with the uh, Thank you again. I really
1: appreciate you making the time. I think this is really a lot of value to our audience. And I look forward to potentially interviewing you down the road to kind of see, you know, what the progress has been. It's pretty exciting.
0: And you guys are in the forefront of it. So continue to do great work. Yeah, thanks so much. Really been a sincere pleasure. Greatly enjoy the conversation and looking forward.
2: It's a privilege to be at the forefront and be talking about this with like-minded folks. Definitely. And continue the good fight. Thanks for
1: listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.